street the rich in their palaces the poor and unlearned and the men of degree they all have a soul in need of salvation and they all have to come to Calvary them free, but the biggest surprise in redeeming all sinners is that he would say, an old sinner like me, was I so bad that I needed forgiveness, was I so wrong, I had to be wasn't a thief, but I lived in sin's prison, and I was as lost as a sinner could be, and I am so glad God saves all sinners. I'm thrilled and amazed that he sets them free, but the biggest Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. Look over the book of 1 Timothy again. 1 Timothy, we'll get on over there. We're going to be in chapter 3 again tonight. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll get to the passage in just a moment. But um, again, we're dealing with Timothy here in the passage. And of course, we know that Timothy was just a young man. And of course, Paul the Apostle had sent him to Ephesus to care for the church and the needs of the church. And um, we know that Timothy was... Uh, um, a mentor, uh, being mentored by Paul the Apostle. And boy, I'll tell you what, Timothy was a special young man to him. And it's uh, believed, obviously, by the way the Scriptures read, that he was uh, more than likely a convert of the Apostle Paul. He was the spiritual child of this man, and uh, he had invested in his life. And as a result, Timothy, this man of God now, uh, is going to Ephesus, and there he's going to confront um, you know, the apathy of God's people. He's going to confront the um, uh, apostasy of God's people and those things which are finding their way into the church. And again, uh, we know that in, uh, it seems, the first chapters of whether it be Timothy or Peter or, 
uh, other other books uh, like that 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 the first portion or the first book of the of those uh, particular pairs uh, deal with the external forces that seem to be wrecking or trying to destroy the church, whereas the second books often deal with the internal problems like doctrinal issues and and just uh, infighting of the church and so forth and so on. And so anyway. We know that Timothy is here in Ephesus now. And although he's a young man, we know that he's going to prove himself capable of accomplishing his calling to Ephesus. He's going to ultimately stand against the wolves. And he's going to uh, stand before those that are seeking to devour the faith. And he's going to come out on top because he's got God on his side. If God be for him, who can be against him? And so uh, as we begin uh, the... the, the um, uh, the message tonight, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. We, we ended with verse 14. We basically looked at that, just the first couple verses there, 13 and 14 last week. Today, we, we are a few verses there toward the end of the chapter, I should say, excuse me. But we're going to look at the last verse today. Look at verse 16 tonight. We want to just look at that verse, and we're going to get moving along rather quickly tonight. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16... We're going to kick off the final section of the book. We're going to look at chapters uh, 4 and 5 and 6 there. And we're going to be looking at this and and trying to understand what God has for us. And so let's look at this verse here uh, as we kick off tonight's lesson or message. Verse 16, it says, And with great controversy, excuse me, with great controversy, that's exactly what it says. Yeah, right. Okay, well, I'm glad that's not what it says. But anyway, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, what a great passage this is. And again, you know, we begin our final section today. And The final section is basically how to become an effective Christian. And that's what we're going to be noting here over these next Wednesday nights. And we're going to focus on two main aspects of that. We're going to deal with our walk with God, and we're going to look at our witness for God. Now, again, in this particular passage, Paul's basically summarizing the essential elements of the truth that we talked about uh, earlier that that, we're custodians of. We're to uphold those truths. We're to uphold these, these uh, particular fa- uh, uh, facts of the faith. And so we're seeing it all kind of coming together. It's almost like this one verse kind of just sums up a lot of what we believe and a lot of, bu- a lot of where we stand here. And so we're going to kind of break that down tonight just a little bit. I mean, this is an amazing verse. The truth is you could write a whole book on this one verse easily. And so tonight we just want to take some time as we prepare to kick off this next section we want to look at this verse as it sets the stage for what we are to uphold, what we are to uh, be custodial of and custodians of. And so let's take a few minutes to consider this impactful and very interesting verse. And so let's pray, first of all. Father, we come to you. Help us, Lord, in these next few moments. We don't have much time, Lord, but give us grace. And Father, may your spirit move in our hearts and lives. Now, Lord, tonight I have nothing to give your people in and of myself. And I beg you, Lord, I do, I beg you to speak to me and through me. Lord, may I be your, simply your mouthpiece tonight. Lord, may you just, Father, just allow me to, Father, be a conduit from heaven to earth and to bring, Father, to the people of God, the Word of God, in a way that's understandable and is clear. Father, may you be glorified in what's said and done. And may they, Father, the people of God, listen with spiritual ears. And Father, may our hearts be stirred and moved tonight. 
May we be encouraged by your blessed book, the Word of God. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we just pray you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now here we have this aspect of the, the, the mystery of godliness defined for us. What is the mystery of godliness? Well, the Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. There it is. That's basically the mystery. That is it. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, throughout the ages, God has been made manifest in His creation. We know that. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 20. So God has made manifest in His creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So even, even God Himself is revealed in His creation. And, and so we see that He's manifest in the brightness of the sunshine. You look at the sun, you see it glowing in the skies, guess what? It's just evidence of a God in heaven again. Evidence of this God who was made manifest in the flesh. We see Him manifest in the, burning, in, the, in the burning stars in the sky at night. You stand out there and twinkle, twinkle, little star. Well, guess what? It's just telling us there's a God in heaven. We notice uh, just uh, the glorious sunrise and sunset that we, we've had the privilege of seeing through our lifetimes. We note that, that the, every flash of lightning and, and every crash of thunder says there's a God in heaven. I mean, we note these things. We see the beautiful rainbow that appears in the sky after a rain. And we say to ourselves, there's a God in heaven. It testifies and manifests the glory of God. We see the, the galaxies and the faintest of the shooting stars in the sky. We notice the silver glow of the moon. And we say to ourselves and recognize the fact that God is manifest in those physical elements that He created. Now, Jesus was man as God always intended man to be. He was man inhabited with God inside. He's God. And you know, we see that Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh. Deity was robed in humanity. We see the Son of God has become the Son of Man. And that's a wonderful thing. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. We see that Christ's human spirit was so filled with the indwelling spirit of God. We see that his, uh, uh, he was so anointed with the spirit of God. He was described, the Bible tells us, as the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. Right. We notice that in, in the book of Hebrews 1.3, it says he was the expressed image of God. I mean, we, we notice also, the Bible tells us in Colossians 2.9, in him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When you saw Jesus Christ, you saw God. That's all there was to it. He is God, manifest in the flesh. And so without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, it says. Early on in the early church, it was in a sense their, their kind of creedal cry that we serve a God who still lives. Jesus is God in flesh. Listen, we, we know there's a number of religions in the world that claim to be correct and claim to be right, but none of them claim that their leader is literally God in flesh. Jesus is indeed Amen. God manifest in the flesh. And so without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. 
Now, let me tell you something. If you don't believe that, you are not saved today. That's right. You can believe in God all you want. But if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, if you don't believe that He is more than a mere man, then you are lost as lost can be. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I mean, Jesus Christ is salvation. He's not just, and we say He's the way, but He is salvation. There is no other salvation in any other. So, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. But also, He goes on to say that God, that also He was justified in the Spirit. Justified in the Spirit. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 10 through 11 for just a moment. Romans chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. In chapter 8, verses 10 through 11 of the book of Romans, we read, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Now I want you to notice verse 11. If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead, Notice what raised up Jesus from the dead, the Spirit. Now, in this particular passage, the apostles saying Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's obvious. Now, again, that's important because, see, that is when Jesus Christ was justified in the Spirit. Because the Bible says, again, God was manifest in flesh, but He was also justified in the Spirit. He was justified in the Spirit when He was raised by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, what that word justified, uh, justified really means, and it's a common word, and that common word is used for declaring sinners to be what? Righteous. We talk about being justified, just as if you never sinned. Okay, but it's talking about sinners being declared righteous. What it really means is to be vindicated or to be proved or pronounced righteous. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus knew no sin. We also tells us that He became sin for us. In the book of 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now listen, those who sought to, 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 to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, those who thought that uh, by placing Him on Calvary would give them the great victory, somehow, someway, they thought they had won that day, don't they? They thought the moment He took His final breath, they had finally enjoyed the, the, the victory that they had sought. Well, they gathered at that cross. They mocked and made fun. And sure enough, he took his last breath. But God had the last word. Because three days later, Jesus Christ was justified in the Spirit, being raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Ghost. Vindicated. And proven to be who he really was. Not just a mere man, but God Himself. Jesus said, I am He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He says, Amen. He says that too. And have the keys of hell and of death, Revelation 1.18. Jesus was justified in the Spirit. But not only was He justified in the Spirit, but the Bible goes on here in our passage to tell us He was seen of angels. Seen of angels. 
Now, if you would thumb through the New Testament any time at all, you'd find very quickly that angels are all over the place. You'd note that they're announcing Christ's birth and they're proclaiming His coming. You'd find that they're ministering to Him as He's being tempted in the wilderness. And also you'd see that, that even during His agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can find them there. Jesus told Peter that He had more than 12 legions of angels He could have called upon if He so chose. The fact is, uh, uh, you, you, you look up legion and you find out what that means. What it's really saying is a legion was approximately 6,000 soldiers or troops. Now, some say it could have been more, but it was a minimum of at least 6,000 troops. So if he had 12 legions of angels he could have called, that means he could have called up to 72,000 angels at any given time. Now, now that, that may not sound like a lot, and you think, well, that's not that big a deal, but how much firepower would 72,000 angelic beings be? Well, all I know is that, that one angelic being took out 185,000 Assyrians. So i got to believe that 72,000 of them could do some pretty wicked damage if they chose to do so. And so we see these angels throughout the New Testament. We see them involved in the life of Christ. We see them at His resurrection. We see them at His ascension back to glory. We're told that angels that will accompany Him as He returns once again in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. We know that, that angels have been very, very busy and active in this redemption plan. And they have aided and assisted the Lord all along. And you know, in all the planets, in all the universe, God chose our planet. Ours. Of all the places in the universe, He chose ours to fulfill this plan of redemption and to deal with this issue of iniquity and sin. That's a wonderful thing. So i got to believe that the heavenly hosts have been anxiously watching it all unfold. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1.12 that they were anxious to view and they, they look forward to seeing things and, and understanding things that they cannot understand, really. In 1 Peter 1.12 it says, Unto whom it was revealed, not, that un, and not, not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them, that, uh, that they have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Man, angels are interested in what's going on here on earth. He was seen of angels. Absolutely seen of angels. From the moment that Christ stepped off the throne of the Father and stepped down onto, into this earth itself, I guarantee you from that very moment until He arrived back in heaven, those angels were glued, riveted on him. He was seen of angels. Seen of angels. So we note that God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. But also the Bible tells us he was preached unto the Gentiles. He was preached unto the Gentiles. Now, when Jesus arrived on the scene here on earth, God was uniquely dealing with Israel as a nation. As a matter of fact, the nation of Israel was a very special nation, as you probably already know. They had been or had received the oracles of God. They'd experienced the manifold blessings of God throughout their history. Christ himself made it very clear, however, that his focus was on his own people, the Jews. When he arrived, he was focused on them. When he came, he really didn't have his eyes on the world, so to speak. He had his eyes on them. You say, what do you mean? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 7. We'll note once again that his real emphasis and his goal was to reach his people. 
Unfortunately, we'll find that his people rejected him. But then again, for a Gentile, that's pretty good. Because that means you and I get in on this thing. Notice Matthew 10, 5 through 7. Speaking of the disciples, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Once again, notice he's directing them to the people of God or to the Jew, to the, the people of uh, the Israel's, the, to Israel. Matthew 15, 24 says, But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, I'm sure glad they rejected him in one sense, because otherwise then maybe I wouldn't have got in on that thing. Someone says, well, sure we would have. I don't know, I'm just reading what the Bible says. I just know that Jesus was sent to his people. He went to receive, to, to redeem the Jew. He went to go ahead and gather Israel back together. His ultimate goal, obviously, was to, to once again reclaim Israel and then to reestablish them as the lead nation in all the universe, so to speak. To put them, to once again take his rightful place on the throne and elevate that nation above all nations. I don't believe there are other planets with other nations and other redemptive plans. I believe it took place and is taking place right here now. I just don't believe all that stuff. I don't play into all of those theories and stuff. What I do know is that we have the Bible, and it talks about God's plan for the universe, and that plan for the universe includes God's plan for this earth, and God's plan for this earth includes God's plan for your life and mine. So he was preached unto the Gentiles. And and fortunately... Like I said, it seems that the Jew rejected Christ. And, and, and because they did, he opened up salvation to the Gentile. But unfortunately, even though Christ had permitted Gentiles to be saved and he had permitted the gospel to go to the Gentile, there was a number of, a lot of racial and religious prejudice that prevailed in that day. And boy, I'll tell you what, he, a person that decided to go to the Gentile, like Paul the apostle did, was met with great resistance. And yet that was one of the great marks of this new dispensation in which God was dealing with man. He was dealing with man as individuals now, not as nations anymore. And praise God for that. That's a blessing. And so even though the, the, the book of Revelation talks about him standing at the door knocking on the outside, looking in in the church, the truth is, is that individually, as a person, God can open, you can open the, heart, uh, the door of your heart to him personally. And that's a good thing. Now... In spite of that opposition of the Judaizers and others that were taking place, those that sought to thwart Paul's efforts, Paul claimed that he had evangelized an area probably about 1,500 miles. And he reached a number of Gentiles, as we know. He was in Syria, across Asia Minor, uh, Minor, and Macedonia, down into Greece. He was all over the place over there. Can you imagine? Sixty years after Pentecost, the Jews were outnumbering the Gentiles in the church. But let's face it, there was still a lot of work to be done. And there still is a lot of work to be done. So we see once again that he was preached unto the Gentiles. This was God manifest in the flesh, is being preached unto the Gentiles. 
But he's being believed on in the world, he tells us here. Being believed on in the world now. Now listen, no matter how ominous you may believe the spiritual condition of our country is, no matter how critical and cynical you may be about those that you reach out to in the world in which we live, and you may feel in your mind and you may... Say in your heart, there's people don't want to hear the truth anymore. They don't want nothing to do with the gospel. They don't want Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Let me tell you, he's still being believed on in the world. The Son of God became the Son of Man, so the sons of men might become the sons of God. Let me say that again. I read that somewhere. I thought I'd throw it in. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Well, aren't you glad there are still those believing, believe, that, believe on in the, that believed on in the world? That's a wonderful thing. And you know, since the history of the church, since Pentecost, is, it has so many examples of men and women believing on Him, trusting and understanding Him to be God in flesh. We call to the stand today John Wesley. John Wesley, he went to America to, as a missionary, and he went to convert the Indians. But while he was trying to convert the Indians, he discovered that he wasn't even converted. He ends up going back uh, to his homeland, England, where he ultimately trusts Christ and becomes a believer. And then he becomes one of the great preachers of all time. We read about him even to this day. We call to the stand the martyr Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer. He was called the honestest man in England. You say, you said that wrong. No, that's how and what he was called. The honestest man in England. When Latimer was burned at the stake, he proclaimed that his martyrdom would ultimately light a candle in England that would never be put out. You know what? It never was. We think about Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was an unknown miner. But he ultimately was a well-known revivalist. As a believer, he was burdened for the need of, of revival, the need of his generation that was in spiritual decay. He began to pray and beg God for revival. He began to ask God to do a miracle in the people and in his nation. Revival came to Wales, and God used Evan Roberts to do it. Revival influenced Britain, and it ultimately spread to Welsh. And it even went to the coal miners in Pennsylvania. It transformed lives. It cleansed society. Revival changes people and it changes things. You know, so much of what we call revival is not revival. True revival changes things. We call to the stand the murderer Saul of Tarsus. We're talking about that he's believed on in the world. Well, we have Saul of Tarsus now. He hated Christ, didn't he? He detested Christianity. As a matter of fact, he considered Jesus to be a blasphemer, and he considered Christianity to be basically nothing more than a cult. But then he met Jesus. Changed everything. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that very faith that he sought to destroy, now he sought to build up. We think of the former mobster, Jim Vaughs. He was an electronics wizard in, his, in the early days of what we would call technology. Nothing like we have today, obviously, but he was sought out because of his abilities. He was born in a Christian home, and he had a believing wife. 
but he accepted the pay of gangsters and racketeers and that found his skills to be soluble and needed and necessary. Then one day, he went forward to accept Jesus Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. Matter of fact, he didn't really even want to go to the crusade. He was really reluctant to go, but one way or another, they dragged him on in. And that day, his life was transformed and changed. As a matter of fact, so changed and so transformed that he ultimately chose to step away or to get out of the mob, which meant his life was at risk. He ultimately went to prison where he paid his debt to society. Then he went in to the ministry as a missionary and won scores of souls to Jesus Christ. We think of D.L. Moody, a simple shoe salesman. He'd come to, from New England to Chicago to make his fortune. And there in the back of a shoe store, his Sunday school teacher opened up the Word of God and led him to Jesus Christ. That bold, brash salesman who was on his way up the ladder of success in the world became a bold and brash believer who threw himself enthusiastically into winning souls. God used him to bring two continents to their knees. And God used him to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had heard one time someone say that they had yet to see what God could do with a man who was wholly yielded to himself. And he said in his own heart that day, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. And Moody became one of the world's great revivalists. Again, saw million, over a million, they say, come to Christ. We think of the slave ship captain, John Newton. He was a rebel. He ran away to sea and sank to the deepest depths of degradation and despair. And then during a storm at sea, it seemed that the Lord was standing right beside him as the, the vessel thrust forward and up and down in that storm. God looked into his soul. And at some point during that ordeal, he was saved. He quit the sea. He became a preacher and a hymn writer. And you know his most famous song, Amazing Grace. Finally, we think of just a simple Sophie, who was simply a scrub woman, a cleaner. She was an uneducated nobody who wanted to become a missionary. Her pastor, Dr. A.B. Simpson, he couldn't find a mission board that would accept her or receive her. So when she came to ask his advice, he told her to go home and pray about it. She went home. She prayed about it. She came back that next week. When Dr. Simpson saw her coming, he thought to himself, what in the world am I going to tell this woman? What can I possibly say to her? But he discovered that the Lord had said all that was needed. And God had directed her attention to the Chinese laundryman on the corner and to the Italian tailor across the way, and to the Greek vegetable vendor who pushed his cart up and down her street. They had all come to New York, the Lord, the, excuse me, the Lord told her, for one reason, so that she could be a missionary to them. <laughs> At her funeral, people kept jumping to their feet, testifying that Sophie had led them to Jesus Christ. A big zero in the eyes of the world. A nobody to most. 
but the most important person on a number of people's list because she was the one that led them to Jesus Christ. See, Christ is believed on in the world. Whether or not we want to believe the lies of Satan, it's up to us, I guess. But the fact is, and the reality is today, is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the fact is that this gospel of a risen Savior, the gospel of a God who was made flesh, a gospel who tells us that He walked this earth as a man and He knows the feeling of our infirmities, and yet He also is there in heaven to make intercession on our behalf, is the very Jesus Christ that we serve. And there is no reason in this world why we should go out discouraged or down in the dumps. We ought to go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ and a smile on our face and with hope in our heart and know that God is able to do a miracle. And the lives of men and women goes on to finally say he was received up into glory. For 40 days and 40 nights, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ simply trod around and met with his disciples and spoke to people and waited for that day. The Bible tells us that he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. But finally... He gathered that 120 followers who believed on Him. And He led them to Olivet where there He was received up into glory. You know, as a result of that today, there's a man in a glorified but battle-scarred body. And he's seated on the throne of God in heaven. We have a great high priest in glory today. One, again, that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And He's there to intercede on our behalf. In 1 John 2, 1 we read, We have an advocate with the Father. And as our advocate, I want you to know He's able to silence all the accusations of Satan, our greatest enemy. Can you imagine if Satan would have chose, excuse me, can you imagine if the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would have chose to stay on earth? Say that He would have gone to His disciples and said, Fellas, set up, a palace for me here. Build it big and make it beautiful. I'm going to reign here in Jerusalem. I'm going to live here in Jerusalem. And he told his secretary and his saints to go ahead and schedule people as they chose. But because there were so many people to be scheduled, he could only give them 15 minutes of his time. I wonder today how many of us could have honestly had an opportunity to meet with him. I wonder if we would have even gotten a chance to go to Jerusalem and to ultimately walk into that throne room and see the Lord Jesus sitting on that throne and ask Him the questions and to open up our heart and to hear Him respond. And even if He did, we only had 15 short minutes in which to receive counsel and in which to bear our own hearts. But today I want you to understand that He has been received up into glory. And I want you to know He is seated on the throne of God. And I want you to realize today, we can go to His throne boldly and we can speak to Him anytime. We can listen anytime. We can bring our heart to Him and bear our hearts to Him anytime we choose. And as long as we want. We have something so far better than a Jesus sitting on a physical throne on earth. See, such is the mystery of godliness. So today we began our final section of the book of 1 Timothy. How to become an effective Christian. We cannot allow these simple basic truths to go unnoticed, unchecked, and unsupported. 
We can't forget who it is we serve today. We serve God in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's creator of all the universe. He is seated on the throne today, making intercession on our behalf. Well, we have it so good today as believers. I know at times it seems difficult in the world in which we live, and circumstances and situations seem to overwhelm us and can even trip us up at times. God, help us to never forget who it is that loved us enough to die for us. God, help us to never forget how good He's already been to us. Instead of whining about what we don't have today, remember what God has done yesterday in our life. What He's done in our home and our families. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. I think what we're going to find as we move along in the book of Timothy is that we're going to realize there were some Gnostics and others around that didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. The apostle is trying to truly lay a very strong foundation in the life of not only the minister Timothy, but also in the church of the living God. And saying, listen, don't you ever forget where you came from and whose you are. Don't you let some liar deceive you into believing that that Jesus you serve is anything less than God Himself. Amen. Father, we come to You. We thank You, Lord, for Your love and Your grace in our life.